0: You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. This new series we're in, um, first off, this, this QR code, if you, want, if you want to scan this QR code now, it will, it will give you access to all the notes and the scriptures that we're going to use this morning. So if you want to scan it, go ahead. Um, and that'll pull up the page that has everything you need. It'll have links to everything we've been talking about too. Well, not everything, but most things. Um, on, in your worship guide, if you'll go to the last few pages, start if you don't mind and please everybody do this, page 21, you're going to notice two worksheets on money. This series that we're talking about, um, called Gri- grasping, gripping and giving a series of view, a view of money, power and our money, possessions and power. That's the series. Um, every week we're gonna have practical tools for each one of you. For the next two to three weeks, this money motivation reflection is gonna be in there for you to do. And this uh something called a money, uh an autobiography with money will be in there for you. Because here is what we're trying to do with this series, and stay with me uh because we have some ground to cover and <clears throat> I want to try and do this in a in a way that makes sense. Um we're going to talk over the next several weeks, big picture. Jason did a good job helping us catch the view of God and economy and possessions and land. It is important. We had our discernment and equipping lab yesterday and we said it's important that we recognize the stories we live from and the story we live into. Are you with me? So we're going to spend time talking about the stories we're living into first. But then as we get more into the series, we're going to talk about the stories we live from. Where do we get our money habits? Where do we get our possession habits? Where did we get some of our points of view from what we do with things in our lives? Where did we inherit the views that we have? How does it boil down into how I manage my money? How does it boil down into how a church manages the Lord's money? Does that make sense? So we're going to get intensely practical. What we're going to do today is we're going to start at 30,000 feet, and we're going to start to, we're going to, start to descend on this series in practical ways, but every single week what you're going to be given are individual family practices to do at home for your homework. Does that make sense? I'm assuming, and I think rightly, that all of us want to be deeper people and more thoughtful people. And we have done a disservice in Christianity, I think sometimes in North America, in the West especially, where we have created false lines between What we then call secular and sacred. Does that make sense? We talk about the physical and the what? See? And the spiritual. And we create these compartments. And as a result of that, we end up picking up some pretty unhealthy and unsustainable, what we believe to be biblically informed beliefs. And they may be biblically informed. The problem is, we have built strainers. Filters. That we pour that information through that ends up not fulfilling the hearts that we possess and the souls that we hold and, and the lives that we live. And I think a lot of times that filter and that strainer are these ideas that there's this such a thing as secular and sacred, physical and spiritual. We have secular music and Christian music, but we have these categories. And we, there's assumptions made in that language. Especially when we talk about the secular and the sacred. And the primary assumption that's made in that language, even though we wouldn't say it, there's an assumption behind it, is that God doesn't own everything. As if there are things in this cosmos that aren't sacred. And the fact is, from a biblical standpoint, as far as I can see it, there's nothing in the cosmos that isn't sacred. There's nothing in the cosmos That Yahweh doesn't call Yahweh's own. Even if the reign of sin and death has come in and twisted it up. And turned it out. And broken it in a million pieces. Yahweh is still involved in it. Working it out for the good of the humanity He loves. The creation He created. And the glory of God. And so... One of the most misunderstood things, it seems to me, is money. And we often hear that money is the root of all evil. But that's actually not what Scripture says. What does Scripture say? Is that the love of money is the root of all evil. We also live in a society that in the name of justice and in the name of progressive Christianity, that's a category that people use that somehow the 99% and the 1% in this language of the haves and the have-nots always has to be this antagonistic language. That we live in this enemy-making machine where the wealthy and the rich are demonized just as much as we live in the enemy-making machine where the poor are demonized. And we demonize and dehumanize based upon material good. talk about nanny states and entitlements we talk about wealth and selfishness and greed and we build these categories that at the end of the day pit one human against another human brother against brother and sister against sister and as christians we should think theologically about these things biblically about these things the best we can and here's why in my view We come to the scriptures for comfort, don't we? We come to the scriptures for encouragement. We come to the scriptures to be taught about, and I need you to see my air quotes here, heavenly and spiritual things. We come to the scriptures for faith instruction. But do we ever come to the scriptures for financial instruction? Do we ever come to the scriptures... Expecting to see things about the material world that we live in, about money and possessions, and how they culminate, work into, build up to power. See, the fact is, the scriptures speak 2,350 times to money in some way or fashion. That is two times, or not two times, that is more than prayer. And heaven combined. Do you know that? That is more than prayer and heaven and faith combined. Now, when we look at the narrative, the story of Scripture, that should not be a surprise. That Yahweh would have a lot to say about the material, that Yahweh would have a lot to say about possessions and money. Especially in a world where power is at work and where brother and sister war against one another. But the Bible devotes twice as many verses to money than it does these other things. And, 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 it, and it needs to be remembered that Jesus talks a lot about money and possessions too. Many times, using them as illustrations, now I want to pause. You may have heard pastors and preachers with well intentions, with good intentions, tell you that Jesus talked more about money than anything else. That's literally not true. He talks more about the kingdom of God than anything else. He talks a lot about money. 11 of 39 of his parables talk about money. But the issue is that we have to look at context. Context is everything. Say it. Context is everything. everything. It's not just that Jesus talks about money that we need to concern ourselves with. It's how Jesus talks about money and possessions. Many times Jesus uses money and possessions as illustrations in his parables to communicate deeper things. Does that make sense? He's not giving a lesson on money. He's giving a lesson about something else and using money as an example to that. Because it seems Jesus knows what money and possessions can do to us. As a matter of fact, Jesus talks about food 18 of 39 times in his parables too. Because food is a possession. And so there's many different ways to work at it. So be wary of statistics like what I am sharing with you. (laughs) Seriously. And look at context. Because it matters about the story. We aren't a people of information. We are a people formed by invitation. Scriptures isn't meant to inform us but to invite us. Scriptures isn't meant to tell us something. It's meant to do something to us. You see the difference? And so when we look at the narrative of Scripture, we have to look at a bigger picture. Now, what Jesus talks most about is the kingdom of God and uses a lot of things as illustrations to open up our imaginations. Everybody say imaginations. Please, that's so critical to help us have a bigger vision of what God has given us for this world. And so I figured it would be good today and over the next couple, three weeks, Jason did a phenomenal job with this. Uh, Laying some groundwork to look at Yahweh's vision for money and possessions. And how we as a humanity have this tendency to, to reach out for a life that is full of grasping and gripping and less giving. But how God has invited us into a life to resist the grasping and gripping and as our lives are enriched to be a people of generosity and hospitality in concrete and tangible ways. Because I want to say something that may sound a bit controversial. Prosperity is not anti-Bible. Just because we have theological commitments and preachers out there who are proclaiming health and wealth, prosperity, gospel, a lot of times churches react to that and think somehow that prosperity is anti-God. It is not. The problem is how we often think about prosperity. That's a lot of times our problem. So this series is going to probably disrupt all of us in some meaningful ways. And my hope is that this series gets all up in your finances. As it's going to have to get all up in my own. And then together we'll see what God is doing as we're getting our houses in order. And we work to get the house of God in order. And I appreciate Dave Anderson for that language of If we're going to get the house of God in order, we have to get our houses in order. And that's that's helpful. Now, everything you just heard me say, I'm going to say every single week. Seriously, it's going to sound tiresome to you, and here's why. Because I do not want anybody participating in this teaching to misunderstand or misinterpret this series. I'll admit to you that because of the abuses of pastors and churches who seem more at times to beg for money... For frivolous purchases, just so they can build bigger rooms to fill more seats and talk about money. Any talk about money from the pulpit, a lot of times, is suspect. Or as the young folks say, sus. I am officially old. The truth is, I'm suspicious of it. Too many times, churches raise capital campaigns to build bigger organs. Bigger things while neighbors live in the community wondering where they're going to sleep at night. So I'm going to repeat this whole introduction every week so that none of you can walk away with an assumption that we're just trying to fill the coffers so we can make ourselves more comfortable four hours a week. God have mercy on us if we ever do that, but if you know anything about the witness of this church, you'll know that's not our commitment. Just the opposite. But I want to start with the bigger picture. Now, remember last week, if you missed it, catch it, please. And if you miss anything, please try to catch it. Last week, we listened to Peter, and Peter told us that God, through the knowledge of Christ, has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Okay? So everybody say, I have everything I need. That is literally what Peter said, and it is literally what Peter meant. There is nothing that God will call you to that you don't already have in you. To live out. We just have to make the effort. Dallas Willard has always said, grace is opposed to earning, but not opposed to effort. There is always a response to the gift of grace. Are you with me? You have everything you need for life and godliness. So when we talk about money and power, when we talk about money and possessions, please don't think about the size of your bank accounts only. That is not what this is about. It's going to involve that. Okay, but it's not about it being big or small. What we're talking about is the size of our hearts and the size of our imaginations and the size of our vision and the size of our courage to be willing to step in to the promises of God. You with me? So this is literally for everybody. It's going to sit differently with some more than it will others, and that is okay. That is how it works on any given series. Don't get lost in those kind of ways of thinking, that kind of loop of thinking, because Peter has said, God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Now, you and I then must make every effort, as Peter said, to add to what's already there. You with me? To add to what's what? Already there. That's important. So you don't have to leave any of these series, any of these conversations and teachings feeling guilty and feeling worn out and feeling like you have to strain and stretch more. You can leave convicted by all means. Let's all leave convicted. But let's not leave thinking that we have to strain and stretch harder because you know what straining and stretching is? Yes, it's the grasping. Dog. Casey, you've been on it. Casey, you are on it. You, want, you, you got this? Because I... I've been out of practice for two months. Like, I. Uh, no, like, you got it. No, that's it. It's the grasping and the gripping. All right. So, I want to start with the most basic thing because too many times we misplace our hopes and commit ourselves to misguided allegiances because of misunderstandings of how money and possessions and power work. Which leads us to lifestyles of grasping, gripping, and not so much giving. And I want to start with the basics in the very beginning. In the beginning of our story. Okay, and here's why. In the ancient Near Eastern world, which is another way of saying in the old times, on the Eastern side of our world, and even Rome to the West, every civilization of people had a creation story they believed in. You with me? Did you know that? Everybody has a creation story, or what's called a creation myth. Myth doesn't mean... Always fake. It means just a story that is told and that forms people. It's part of people's identity. And in every creation narrative in the world, there is that the story runs about the same. And it runs like this. The gods are at war with each other. Violence happens between the gods. Out of the blood of the carcasses of the gods are the creation. is the creation formed. And then humanity is formed out of the blood of the gods, sometimes, or just formed out of the ground to be slaves and servants of the gods, who are all the time irritated at the humans because they are pesky little creatures, as we are, especially when we're in middle school. I just thought putting that out there for us to consider. <laughs> and that is the narrative that humans are slaves and servants of the gods who are oftentimes angry and you must appease the gods with sacrifices, right? Until the Hebrew creation story. And this is what makes Genesis 1 through 3 extraordinary. Because out of the chaos and the formlessness, God brings peace. Not out of God-inspired violence. In a world that is spinning out of control, God brings peace and shalom and fills what is empty and makes beautiful what needs to still be put together. And then out of that creation story, every day that goes by where God makes a beautiful, creative act, he says, it is what? Good. Good. Hebrew word for toad. Which means more than just what we often talk about when we say good. It means of great beauty and worth and value. Does that make sense? This isn't good as in like that banana pudding is good. Well, yeah, it is, actually. But it isn't that kind of good. It's a deeper good. And then the text reads this way. If you have your Bibles, Genesis 1, I know you know the text, but, you know, over-familiarity can cause us to miss things sometimes. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Everybody say, our image. image. And everybody say, our likeness. likeness. And then it says, they will rule. Everybody say, "Rule." rule. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So, verse 27. Now, I want you to see what the writer of this story is trying to help us see. There's redundancy here. Repetition is like Yahweh's highlighter. Okay. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Do you notice that that early in the story, the writer wants us to know that Yahweh made male and female because we get lost in the man language? We mansplain <laughs> in Genesis, right? Like, and so Yahweh wants us to see that Yahweh's fullness and Yahweh's image is only fully seen when we see male and female you see that and in this story males and females men and women are made in the image of god that language image of god is icon and that language isn't just an exact replication of something even though it is that language is actually royal language are you with me and then says in our likeness Which is another way of saying, is like us. And so when you see Yahweh say in this story, when you see, hey, we're going to make people, we're going to make humanity in our image, that isn't saying, oh, we have eternal souls and we get to go to heaven when we die and we have the ability to choose and a free will and all those things. That's actually not what it means. That may be implications. That's literally not what it means. What it means is that there is a royal, divine reality to who we are. Which makes sense then when Yahweh says, "And hey, y'all are going to what? Rule over this cosmos that I am entrusting. Everybody say entrusting. Entrusting to you. You're going to make culture. You're going to make cultures and societies. And you're going to take what is good and care for it. And you're going to do it as my divine co-regents. That's another language. Our governors. That's the other language. You with me? That's important. Because you know why that's important? Because every time we see death and violence, we go, oh, they're image bearers. And we think, I don't know what we think when we say that, but if we, if we meant what the Bible means when it talks about being made in the image of God, we would detest the violence. And our hearts would break when we see human beings subjugated to other human beings because we're seeing... That this human being that's made in the image of God has an immense amount of value and an immense amount of worth that no one has authority to challenge. Oh, Beloved, it doesn't matter what somebody thinks of you. Yeah. You are made in the image of God. Amen. Your value and worth has already been determined. And God looked at you and said, oh, it is very good the only time he said very good is when he said we just made people and if, we, if we got this we wouldn't subjugate women historically we wouldn't subjugate black and brown bodies historically if we really if the church really understood what it meant for humanity to made in the image of God then we would understand how this text works do you notice in this text there's nowhere are humans supposed to rule other humans? You see that? They don't rule humans in this text. There is no subjugation and subordination in humanity in creation. That doesn't happen until when? The fall. And so when churches think that women are lesser or other people are lesser than men, whatever, churches are actually holding up fallen theology. Rather than creation theology. Are you with me? Come on. on, This is important. Because then God grants everything to humanity. And says I need you to steward this. Matter of fact God is even saying. I trust you. To steward this. But we don't always steward well. Because we mistake stewardship. Stewardship. For ownership. We trade in our trusty paperwork for titles and deeds. For all the things we hold. And Yahweh knows that this is our tendency. And so when Yahweh is establishing the law of his people, he delivers the people from Egyptian captivity and enslavement, where all they know is Pharaoh's economy of uh, brick-making and slave labor. That is the only nation state they know is the economy of enslavement and anxiety and scarcity and more, 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 more. All they know is gripping and grasping because that for 400 years has been their story. Yahweh liberates them from that life and helps try to open up their imaginations. Everybody say imaginations? Because they've never seen it, so now they've, tried to, they've got to try and kind of capture the vision of it somehow. They've got to try and envision it, to imagine it. And so Yahweh then brings them out and sets them up with the law. And in this law, Yahweh gives them economics. Yahweh gives them medics, medical, science. Yahweh gives them all kinds of things in this law. Government, legislative. God, Yahweh gives them a politic to govern them. And, and that politic includes economics, and in that economics includes A blessing that you will prosper. And that it is good. Creation can still be good. But Yahweh knows that affluence and accumulation often leads to amnesia. Yahweh knows that as we accumulate and as our position in society increases... That we have a tendency toward forgetting. And so Yahweh says to them in a very lengthy text in Deuteronomy 8. If you're with me. Deuteronomy 8. Verse 11. But watch yourself. That's how it starts. It doesn't say treat yourself. (laughs) Ah, You see what I did there, Rob? That was lame, I know. Yahweh says, but watch yourself. Don't forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commands or his case laws or his regulations that I am commanding you right now. Listen to this. When you eat, get full. Build nice houses and settle down. And when your herds and your flocks are growing large, your silver and gold are multiplying, and everything you have is striving, which Yahweh wants, he says this, don't become arrogant. Forgetting. Everybody say forgetting. Forgetting Forgetting the Lord your God, the one who rescued you. From Egyptian enslavement. Now if you read Deuteronomy slowly. You're going to find a phrase that is repeated constantly. Remember. You were slaves in Egypt once. Remember. I liberated you from enslavement. And it is Yahweh's way of saying. Don't forget your history. See Yahweh wanted his people unlike our nation. It seems Yahweh wants his people to know the whole story of history even the parts we would rather run from and deny because he knows that that keeps us in a place of humility and contrition and repentance and with open eyes to see how we need to do the work and I'm quoting Isaiah here of repair and rebuild and restore that which has been broken due to those things. Are you with me? And so over and over again Yahweh says, do not forget. So yeah, as your bellies get full and I'm happy about that. As your flocks and your and your and your and your fields grow, I'm happy about that. Continue to do, though, with that that I've asked you to do. So when you grow your fields, don't cut the edges. The edges are for the widow, the immigrant, the poor, and the orphan. When you drop stuff, don't pick it up because that's for the widow, the immigrant, the orphan, and the poor. These things, I have an economy for you. I need you to live into it. I want you to flourish because if you flourish and you do what I want you to do, then everybody flourishes and my original goodness of creation will be known. We can love money and possessions more than people. And we can put profit over people. And Yahweh knows that. And so Yahweh says, listen, I'm not done with that text yet. He thought I was done with the text. Verse 15. Don't forget me, the one who led you through this vast and terrifying desert of poisonous snakes and scorpions, of cracked ground with no water, the one who made water flow for you out of a hard rock, the one who fed you manna in the wilderness. That's verse 16 of Deuteronomy 8, if you're keeping up. Yep. Which your ancestors had never experienced, in order to humble and test you, but in order to do good to you in the end. Do you see that? God has God's good in mind for you, beloved. He does. The reign of sin and death will tell you otherwise. The gripping and the grasping will tell you otherwise. But Yahweh is trying to speak a different word. Verse 17. Are you ready? Here's the text I was actually trying to get to. So Yahweh then says, Don't think to yourself. My own strength and abilities have produced all this prosperity for me. Remember the Lord your God. He's the one who gives you the strength to be prosperous. For what reason, God? Well, to establish the covenant I made with your ancestors. In other words, to show that I am the one that I say I am. Because when I have for a people myself who bear witness to my love and generosity and hospitality with their money and their possessions, it creates a kind of power that points people to my power Mm -hmm. to provide, but when I have for myself people who do not see that their money and their possessions are my own, are actually mine, Yahweh says, then it creates a kind of power that can create harm and trauma and even violence and death. The lands are God's. The land in which this building sits. Though owned before us by the Kiskiak tribe. Taken from them. The land entrusted to them. Stewarded by them. The land is still God's. The land upon which your house sits. God's. The waters and everything in it. God's. The minerals that the land produces or that has within itself and the waters that holds the minerals that make the technology that we all enjoy still God's. The vegetation that grows on the ground that we till or somebody tills still God's. You, beloved, are God's. And all that we have has been given not so we can own but so that we can steward as trustees of the goodness of God. But if we allow accumulation and affluence to lead us to amnesia, we will find ourselves grasping. You know what grasping is? Everybody say grasping. Grasping, Grasping, constantly reaching out for more, never satisfied with what we have. There is never genuinely enough. And that grasping always leads to gripping. Everybody say gripping. Because gripping is ridden, like overrun by the fears of scarcity, that there's not enough. A pandemic happens, one pack of toilet paper isn't enough. (laughs) And we look and we laugh and we say, yeah, but you know, that is kind of true. I mean, we had a toilet paper shortage. You know why? I mean, we know why. Sidebar: You know what we did? We organized other churches to take all of the toilet paper that they had and give to House of Mercy. Because I was like, "Why are we sitting on toilet paper?" No pun intended. All that we have, and when we when we grip and when we grasp, we don't give. And you know what the problem with gripping is if we walk around life double-fisted, you know what we can't do? We can't open our hands to the things God wants to give. You with me? God, the God who says, hey, I want you to eat and be full. Hey, I want you to prosper. I want you to flourish. We can't because we're gripping on what we had. So we can't open up to what God has. And the only way to grip, to let go of the grip, is to learn how to what? Give. Give. And so all of this unfolds over and over again, and we're going to see that giving now is not something we do out of obligation. When I I recognize that everything from the trees to the ground to the oil underneath it is God's, and then I realize that everything I have is not really my own, even though in the English language it seems our favorite word is my and mine. Kids learn it from the jump. When I learn that everything I have is a gift of grace. Everything is a gift of grace. That it is all grace, like Brennan Manning said. And I truly get that. That stirs up within me gratefulness. And then I give out of gratefulness because I recognize that everything is grace. That it is really not my own. Does that make sense? And so now I'm not giving out of obligation and guilt. I'm giving out of a deep-seated awareness that all I have is grace. It's all grace. And God, for whatever reason, is entrusting me with this for this moment, and it is mine only to steward and share. Which is exactly what happened in Acts chapter four. The kind of people this created in Acts chapter four, verse 32, listen to the text. The community of believers was one in heart and mind. None of them would say, this is mine. About any of their possessions, but held everything in common. The apostles continued to bear powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And an abundance of grace was at work among them all. You know how an abundance of grace was at work among them all? Because they weren't gripping and grasping. They were liberated and free. And look at what it says, verse 34. There were no needy persons among them. Well, of course there were no needy persons among them. Because no one among them said that their possessions were what? Mine. Those who owned properties or houses would sell them, bring the proceeds from the sales, and place them in the care and under the authority of the apostles. Then it was distributed to anyone who was in need. Do you see it here? You want to know why the early church had the witness they did, y'all? The reason why Julian the Apostate, a non worshiping, an atheist Roman leader, got so irritated at his priests was because he discovered that the church was not only taking care of their own poor, but the poor of Rome too. You want to know how they could? Because each one of them knew that everything they have is grace. And they didn't war against the haves and the have-nots because there were no have-nots. Because the ones that did not have had something. Because some had more than others and they shared and everybody had something. There was no anger and anti-wealthy people mentalities and anti-poor people mentalities in the church. Because everybody knew that it was all grace. And if this brother or sister had an abundance, they knew that God had just entrusted them with that because God could. And that was okay. Which is why then Paul wrote Timothy later, and I close with this. And he says to to Timothy, verse 10 of chapter 6, 1 Timothy 6, chapter 10. Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some have wandered away from the faith and have impaled themselves with a lot of pain because they made money their goal. Impaled themselves. You hear that language? Woo! That is nasty, Paul. He says, As for you, man of God, run away from these things. Pursue justice, holy living, faithfulness, love, endurance, and great gentleness. And then he says in verse 17, Tell the people who are rich at this time not to become egotistical and not to place their hope on their finances, which are uncertain. Instead, they need to hope in God who richly provides, listen, who richly provides everything for our what? Enjoyment. So listen, don't feel guilty about a vacation. Don't feel guilty about enjoying what God has blessed you with. Don't feel guilty about that. These things are given to you for enjoyment. But do not become arrogant or egotistical or start gripping or start grasping. Make sure that in your enjoyment you are wildly generous. Because that also is joy. And so he finishes and says, tell them to do good to be rich in the good things they do, to be generous and to share with others. When they do these things, they will save a treasure for themselves that is a good foundation for the future. And this is my favorite line. That way they can take hold of what is truly life. Because a life that is real is not ever going to be bound up. Praise team, y'all can get up. Not ever going to be bound up in the amount of money you have or don't have. Did y'all hear me? The kind of life that is real is oftentimes not the kind of life that we work and enslave ourselves to economy to accomplish. The kind of life that is real is not the kind of life that causes us to spend 15 and 16 hour days and takes us away from the ones that we're providing for. The kind of life that is real is not the kind of life that strains and stresses over maintaining the big things that we purchased and the the, the, the heavy debts that we collect. The kind of life that is real is the kind of life that is liberated from the affections of those things. And that resists the gripping and the grasping that comes and instead leans into the giving that comes because it's all grace. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.